right, we are recording. BJ, always Gustavo. great to see you. Thank Good you so much for you being too, here. Kyle. Thank you. I'm very excited for this thing you're putting out in the world, brother. I'm really Thank happy you. for, well, I should say happy for you. I'm happy for all of us. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I hope that I can live up to expectations and that, uh, you know, we can we can make a difference and make an impact on the community. No doubt. No doubt. So I, I'm just going to put this out there now just for, for our listeners to understand. Your story has been well told before and many platforms, many people. Um, you've already said what you've had to say at the highest level. My, my interest in talking to you today is to explore some new territory, to dive into some new topics, and then to see what you've been up to and get a feel for what's going on with, with mental health. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Yeah. Awesome. So I have been curious about I know, I know that you studied art in college and I'm not interested. I'm interested right now in like, what is your relationship right now to art? Is it something that is still a big part of your life? Is it something that hmm. you still appreciate work in? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, man. I, yes, I, I love, well, thank you. You touched on one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Um, so art for me is now, uh, is definitely a part of my life. Um, I love to live with art. I love like, you know, hunting for it, collecting it. Um, I love being around it. I, I love, I, I often will go to, well, these days, not so much, but pre and soon to be post pandemic, if I didn't just jinx anything, um, it will, I look forward to getting back to museums. I, you know, it's funny. I, and it was this way when I studied it in college too. It's not, it's not that no single art piece is, I mean, there are certain art pieces of art that I, I, I that really speak to me and that I particularly love, but it's so much of my interest in it is sort of the I, idea of art. I love that art exists. I love that the human impulse to create things from our experience. And so much of the inspiration or poignancy that I derive from art is is simply that it's a reminder of the of of being that being human is among other ways of looking at it a, a creative act that we find our way we create our lives to some degree we respond to things we make things from what we were given we improvise throughout any one day you know that it's just a beautiful. I, I think the creative lens is a beautiful way to approach being alive in this world, and I and it makes me. It's one of the things that makes me um, very happy to be a human being. Sometimes, sometimes I look at my dog or the cats I live with, or other animals or trees, and sometimes I feel a little jealous of other other creatures in the world. Being a human being is tricky. Um, but the fact that art exists is one of those things that really makes me love being human and loves humanity. So yeah, there's a little whirlwind of an answer to your question, but we can go anywhere from there in more specifics. Yeah, so I is, is there a specific form of art that you're more drawn to? Or is it just, I, obviously mm -hmm. I can see that you appreciate it as a general mm -hmm. act of creativity, but is there something, mm -hmm. is there some form of it that speaks to you more? Yeah. Yeah, so for traditionally for me, music has been really, if we're talking about the arts broadly, like music has has, has throughout my life been the nearest, dearest, the, the most direct way in to, for me. Like, I, you know, there's, I studied a bunch of different musical instruments as a kid, and that certainly helped foment my interest. But like, I think for a lot of us, music just speaks to us in ways that are, you know, unique. Um, and it's immediate, you know, you, you, there's an emotional pull. You don't, it, I don't have to think about music. It's fun to analyze, like studying art history was fun to analyze things and contextualize them historically and hunt for, you know, why did someone make it sound like this or look like this and all that stuff. 
I am interested in that, it's, it, but that's sort of separate. I'm interested in the creative process, like we were talking, but also just the the feeling of being around art. I started to say a minute ago, now I'm going all over the place, but I started to say a minute ago, I love to go to museums just to be, or galleries, just to be around art. I don't, I often find times will go whiz through very quickly. I don't necessarily need to do much there or stare at any one piece of art. I just like being near it. It sort of has a vibe of its own. Um, and similarly with music, I just, Early on, early on, I think, I think this is probably very common. The things that I most appreciated, the kinds of music, the kinds of painting, the kinds of art in general that I that spoke to me, were the ones that were sort of accessible to me. So musically, I've always loved because I used to sing pretty seriously in a choir. You know, like I loved if I could reproduce it, if I could sing a song. You know, then I that I, then I like that song, you know, in a way that it somehow related to my own experience. And that was a way in. So in some ways earlier, art was the safe thing, this thing that I could recognize from my own experience. Hmm. And music was a big part of that. And specifically music with a melody and a harmony and things that I could track and, and uh, reproduce myself. But then as I got older and I got, and I, and I was around more, of life and experience, I, 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 then I became much more interested in music and other art that didn't immediately speak to me, that I didn't immediately recognize. It was became a way for me to pull out of my experience rather than going into my experience, like early on, it became a way for me to go into the experience of others or go into places that, was, that were uncomfortable or you know, dissonance with music, things that actually didn't sound lovely and pretty and easy to sing. Um, complicated rhythms and modern music, atonal music, tight, weird harmonies, uh, early polyphony, like medieval and Renaissance music. Um, so, so increasingly I'm interested in art that I don't, that may speak to me, it hit me on some level, but art that I don't understand, that's, much, that's become much more interesting to me. And so similarly, as I've gotten into more visual arts, you know, it used to be like this painting behind me, Gustavo, you can see, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pastel of a landscape. It's a, it's a pretty picture, you know, but that's a sentimental thing to me. That's a place I know. And so it's fun, it's fun for me to see a, a painting of a place I know and in, in, uh, sort of sentimental reasons. Um, that's lovely and sort of decorative in a way, but there's certain art that the big stuff that really gets me deep is, is much more, tends to be more abstract, that I'm not seduced into being, am I interested in this painting because it's portraying a landscape that I know, or am I interested in her technique or what? In the abstract stuff, like, you know, you don't recognize a place, it, it pulls you out of your narrative. And I'm increasingly interested in that. It pulls me to places I don't know that I don't understand. So with all that, all that backed up, um, uh, the older I've gotten, the more interested I am in abstraction, uh, odd stuff, weird stuff, uh, not recognizable to me. I think, I mean, there's so many layers there. My music has always been important to me too, but I have come to love classical music so much mm. <laughs> because it took effort to actually understand it. It was not right. approachable. I didn't get it. You know, I'd start out by just listening to the same piece in the background five, six, seven, ten times, mm -hmm. and then I would go listen to it seriously, and it was an exploration. So I think I think part of it, right, if I'm reading it correctly, is you're exploring new aspects of yourself, new aspects of life, different narratives. But right I think that, that, right, there's also the sense of Again, tell me if I'm reading this wrong, but there's also a sense of, of approaching something and trying to master it and trying to understand it that mm -hmm. maybe was alien to you before. And now you're, you're diving into it to understand something else about yourself or the world around you. Right on. That's, that's yeah, I, that's a great way of putting it, Gustavo. I, I feel total kinship with that statement. I mean, it's the only word I change would be master it you know I, I do 
I do love making the unfamiliar familiar. You can almost feel like I bet you've had this feeling with classical music. It, 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 as you notice with each listening, you notice more and more, even though it was always there, you notice a little bit more, you know, and then it becomes familiar. And then when you hear it, you can kind of finish the stanza, you can finish the song yourself. And I do love that process of taking this foreign thing outside of myself and beginning to relate to it and then pulling it inside myself so that it becomes familiar. Then, then, then that artwork sets up in me as in my memory bank somewhere as part of my own makeup. So it's a way for me to stretch and pull and understand, understand things. And even if I don't understand it cognitively, it's almost, I guess, almost like make it my own, have my own experience with that. I guess it's a little different from mastering per se, I'm, um, in my idea. So I'm just word, yeah, I'm, no, picking, I'm picking on you a little bit, but, master, but otherwise that statement. Yeah. yeah, mastering is probably out of place there, but yeah, no, but the the thought just struck me, right, that there's an analogy there with disability and those narratives and like the awkwardness that people face when they first encounter it there i think there's some interesting parallels there if we can think of approaching people with disabilities the way we approach learning a new art form or learning something that we're unfamiliar with i think there's some interesting lessons to tease out of there Totally. Amen. I think you're right on about that. Uh, lots to say about that. Yep. Please do. What do you <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> because there's something about art. Um, a couple of things, a couple of thoughts. One is like, by virtue of having a, a calling something art, you know, that means that's a, you know, what is art? That's a, it's an important question. We could get sidetracked too long, but when you quick tangent like what the heck is art what's the difference between art and is a brick can a brick piece be a piece of art i mean you know, so intention seems to matter context seems to matter a lot and the intention of the artist seems to matter a lot but what is art is a is an interesting question in in part because we can see our own lives as works of art we can see anybody's life as a creation as a work of art and by virtue of calling it art, it almost, it, 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 out of the shoots, even if you don't respond to it or like it per se, it has some respect by virtue of it. It exists in the world. It's there, whether you're looking at it or not, it doesn't need you, but it will relate with you. Um, and there's a way into art that um, can sidestep a lot of the stuff that comes up between humans. Um, and again, you, you're starting from a place of respect. You're starting from a place of seeking and trying to understand it rather than making it come to you. And I think there's a lot to be said about approaching any human being that way, the respect that it confers, the curiosity, the humility, um, and absolutely extra poignant, I would suppose, in approaching someone with a disability or any difference from your own experience. Um, but very, but more specifically with disability, because as you and I have talked, the the differences uh, that by which we're defined as, as disabled people, um, for us be, can, can be grist, not this sort of uh, sad, poor, oh, woe is me, this thing that I don't have, this thing that I wish it were normal. Um, I don't mean to castigate that impulse to try to fit in and be normal. I certainly, we all have that. That's, a, But there's also something to push back on that. Um, what is this thing that is normal? You know, And why do we have to frame things by in reference to something else? You know, artwork, if you're doing it historically, you'll compare and contrast, but art has a way of existing for its sake, for its own sake, and you're not trying to make it something it's not. I wish we did that with each other, especially around disability, to see it as this thing that, as a bystander, you may not understand, but have curiosity about it, have respect for it, acknowledge its existence. You know, one of the kindest things we can do is acknowledge each other's reality. But another way, one of the harshest things we can do to each other is to deny each other our reality. And playing with art, sitting with art, sinking into it, spending the time around it, you know, that has a, that just brings a totally different mindset of creativity and respect. I know I'm repeating myself. So, so 
anyway, that, that, yes, I'm super with you on all levels. And also like even more specifically, like, you know, for me as an amputee, right, I have my prosthetic legs. And for me, it was a huge breakthrough in my own sort of therapeutic arc, uh, you know, my own basically trying to inhabit my own reality, become, come to terms with my life. Um, that's why I studied art, Gustavo, actually, that was, it was a kind of a hunch that studying art had something for me to learn. There was a th something for me to learn in the ways that we've been talking. And it was a good hunch. So when I started looking at my prosthetic leg as a creation unto itself, as it's its own thing, not a cheap replacement for this thing that I had lost, but rather its own thing, I could start seeing it uh, all of a sudden as something that was beautiful um, and something I could be curious about, something I could play with. You know, that was a huge breakthrough for me just personally. Um, it shifted how I saw myself. And that came directly, well, in part fueled by my mom's experience and understand a basic understanding of disability as a civil right, et cetera. But studying art was the thing, specifically modern architecture, where they were pulling all the old, like the applique, the decoration off of a building. And it used to be the norm would be you would, you would hide the structural elements of a building, you know, you'd cover it up with moldings and carvings and ornate stuff and beautiful stuff. But it was a covering, it was a cosmesis, you know, and modern art, it was a big breakthrough with Louis Sullivan and others was to pull all that stuff off and quit trying to make it some narrow lame version of pretty, like, let's blow it up. Like, you know, humans have bigger capacity than just pretty, you know, like, and so we started pulling all the applicant buildings and started celebrating the structural bits for their own sake. That really rocked me. That was so beautiful. That day I came home from this modern architecture class, class pulled these foam, these sort of faux flesh colored foam coverings off my prostheses that were, you know, meant to help you pass, right? They kind of looked like a leg ostensibly. So they're trying to help you pretend. So here, breakthrough here was stop pretending, man. This, yeah, this is an un unusual leg. This is a different leg, but it's a cool leg in its own right. It's got its own forces, its own life. And that, I mean, that was just for me, just a, a huge moment. Um, anyway, I can't now remember which question I'm answering, but no, no, you're, we're just talking. So <laughs> yeah, okay, good. This is, this Sorry, is good. Man. Welcome there's, to my brain. There's, there's no, there's so much to, to to say here and, and tease out, right? Because I studied philosophy in college mm -hmm. and graduate school. And I was fortunate that my professors in the, the way they taught, you, you didn't criticize an ancient philosopher mm -hmm. until you learned to understand what it was they were actually trying to say. Mm -hmm. So there was a respect and appreciation for what you were engaging with, right? And and you, you had the same thing in art, same thing in, in architecture. Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing to me that we we have this incredible capacity to engage in these ways with these subject matters. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to apply it to human beings, it's like everything shuts off and we go into animal instinct or whatever it is we do. Yeah, man. That's so true. It's so, it's kind of stunning. I have this feeling a lot like of meeting, like if I, I, especially like, you know, when we are in our undergraduate days and met, like our graduate school, all that stuff, like you're around people who are applying so much devotion and thoughtfulness to these sub to subjects. Um, but you take that, you, they would stop. They wouldn't apply that same introspection and respect and seeking to their own lives, nor to the lives of others, this major disconnect, and it's not just a disconnect, but it's a tragic one, because if we gave each other that same respect that we can give subject matter like we do, whew, what a different place. And I don't know why we don't. It seems like such an easy, take that way of thinking and being and feeling and just simply apply it to the rest of your life. Why do you save that kind of beautiful way of being for the classroom and keep it out of real life? I have no idea. Do you have any, do you have any ideas of why the hell we do that? 
I think that's a complicated question, probably beyond my, I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons. One idea is just, we don't, I think the way our consciousness forms, the way we're culturally raised, right? We're, we're hard mm -hmm. on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Don't think of ourselves in the same way as we think of other people. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we're not aware. It's a lack of awareness that mm -hmm. I'm trained to do this specific thing and learn this specific pattern here. But I don't know, maybe there's something in our brain, something in our, in our consciousness, in our humanity, in our culture that mm -hmm. just prevents us from applying it to ourselves. I mean, some people have clearly done it more than mm -hmm. others some people do treat people with with more of that curiosity more of that openness of wanting to yeah. wanting to engage with another person and understand them and and learn mm -hmm. from them and grow from it so it's definitely mm -hmm. possible mm -hmm. but i that's a huge question i'm not i'm not sure i'm not either brother i mean but i do think god does give us a little bit of a compass like as a way that we might there's of 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 seeking pre-existing ways of being, ways of thinking and applying them more broadly. Like I do think that we're in a time of sort of, like I'm not interested in uh, no no new stuff for a while. I'd love to see a moratorium on innovation for a while to force us all to actually work with already with what already exists. I think we get this momentum going and we are attracted to the next shiny object and we blow past all sorts of stuff. Um, so I almost long for a moratorium on innovation for, I don't know, a couple of years to force us to slow down, pay attention to what we already have, because what we already have is huge. I mean, just like on this, on this note, I mean, we could, you know, looking around for ways of thinking and feeling, well, we have them in all these beautiful classrooms. We have, there's plenty to draw from. So I'm with you. There's something about momentum. There's something about context, you know, context switching uh, people need to get, we need to make that a very conscious activity. Um, uh, so the context of a classroom or a studies versus the rest of life. Um, so got, not getting hung up or, or, or more realizing that we have some say over how, how we place the frame of reference, the field of view, we can change the context is another way of experience a thing is, is playing with its context. So seeing even that as a creative pursuit. And then I guess the last little hunch here together would be as social animals, you know, the expectations and it relates to context. So, uh, but as social animals, the expectations in a social setting are different from a classroom. And I think if we just spent a little, a moment there, we could open that up and make those switches conscious and, and blow it up a little bit. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm with you. I don't know exactly. I don't have a, I don't know exactly why it is the case, why, why human beings do really just about anything that we do, but boy, it seems awfully tantalizing to think that God salvation is waiting for us with the stuff right in like under our noses, the things that we even already know just need to apply them a little differently or more broadly or something like that. Absolutely. And I think the idea of time is, is the way we use it, how much of it we have, obviously, we only have so much, but we're mm -hmm. always in a rush. It's more and more and more. It's go, mm -hmm. go, go. So if we actually took the time, made the time created the space to sit or or socialize, engage in a community with of people, mm -hmm. maybe that light bulb would come on. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I wish we'd sort of like, yeah, I mean, we'll just repeat ourselves. Hey, right. I mean, it's just like, it seems to be so much about paying attention, you know, if we can find a way to pay attention and that's at odds with the speed as you just described that which we're moving, uh, it doesn't allow us to settle into things and we just don't notice stuff. And that's, that seems like a big shame, especially in the context of realizing as you and I do that we are mortal, we're not here forever. Uh, so boy, we do squander a fair amount of time though. Oof. We do, we do. Mm -hmm. But I think the other point that you were talking about that was really interesting is the mm -hmm. idea that realization you had of not hiding the prosthetic, of having mm -hmm. it be a part of you, of 
Mm-hmm. And I, when I was young, the prosthesis was something and the brace was something that I used to get around and it was what it was. As mm-hmm. I got older, um, yes, it was less cosmetic and I felt it become more of a part of my body. And I think it's mm-hmm. also interesting to explore, you know, how do you express yourself in mm-hmm. your prosthetics by what you're doing versus 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 me versus somebody else, right? There's people mm-hmm. who are incredible athletes. They're expressing it in one way. There's people who maybe they're into dance or uh, some other, just just the way we, we move in the world, the way we express ourselves mm-hmm. in the world it's, it's different for all of us. And I think that's, that's a really interesting point that you brought up. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, there's like a, I don't know how you feel about the word aesthetics, Gustavo. Um, I love that word. It's me. It's a, it's so much a, a naming what we're talking about because to go a little, to, to settle into these funny legs of ours, you know, um, one of the ways, I don't know about you, but one of the ways that I have, that has allowed me to settle into it is, um, is to see its aesthetic, its look and feel, its fit and finish, the material, the qualities of the material, the honesty of it. Like, you know, does, can I see the mechanism in action or am I covering it up or am I hiding something? And there's nothing wrong with like playfully hiding things. You know, there can be a way to, I can imagine someone really delighting in playing with the reveal of a prosthesis or applying that sort of craft, that love, that loving craftsmanship. I've seen, I've, I've heard of people who get these cosmetic covers and then have little hairs inserted and veins and it becomes a sculpture. That's, that's not been my way, but hey, each are on this. Like you say, this can be individual expression in all this. Um, variations on themes we all share, but individual expressions within these themes is, is uh, what a huge potential. We're given this incredible raw material to play with. Unlike a lot of folks who have their uh, quote unquote regular or normal feet, you and I, we have these, you can see this as adornment, you know, we can, as, as ornaments as, and we can play with those and we can. And another way of, another way of putting all that is by finding some way to get into them to delight in them, this look, this feel, this touch, the effect, all of it, any of it, these are all root for me anyway. I realize that these are those roots of fascination and playfulness and interact and engagement of inhabiting your own life um, and making it your own life. You know, all these things are proxies or arrows that point us to a way of basically <laughs> trying to find a way to love life, love our lives love ourselves even. I know that's a hard, that's a hard, that's a big ask. Um, but these are ways, these, these aesthetic routes are ways in to being, to, to caring about the, the, your reality and eventually maybe even loving it. I couldn't agree more. I, for, for me, the word aesthetic is is interesting. I, I think it depends on the context. It depends on who's saying it and and kind of understanding their perspective more. Aesthetics can obviously be a terrible word, right? A very superficial <laughs> thing, or it can right. be it can be as deep and profound as you're willing to make it, which you just showed right now. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's I think of it. Um, I'm not a scientist, but I've always thought of it scientifically. What can I do with this? How can I express myself? What are my mm-hmm. limits? How can mm-hmm. I push those limits? How can this be better? Um, how can mm-hmm. I be better so that I can use it more effectively for the things that I want to do? And th- mm-hmm. I guess there's a certain aesthetic with that too. There is. There is. And if these are ways in that I would encourage you to pay attention, well, you know, once you're paying attention, you'll start noticing things and you'll notice ways to tweak it, make it better, make it different, whatever. But you got to find some way to pay attention. And as you and I both know, that can be hard with uh, physical differences and disabilities, uh, in part because they can be very painful in, in inherently. There are pains that go with this for a lot of us. And there's social pain that goes with it. There's a, there are a lot of forces that conspire 
to make us want to either deny our own experience or somehow not think about it. And of course, we, we know what happens when, when we are not paying attention to things. Uh, so as you're, as you're talking, these are ways of paying attention. Therefore, when, when you're paying attention, these are ways to optimize, maximize, take advantage of, appreciate, etc. And that's an extra, there's an extra big sell, sale to us in the disabled world, I think, because otherwise our body is just a little bit more likely to be a source of pain or embarrassment or something that keeps us apart from ourselves. You know, right. and that seems something to be a we, big something problem. we have to overcome, something we have to prove. Right. That we're still worthy, all of those, all of those things that are attached to it. Right. Somehow put behind us or whatever it is, right on. Yep. Yep. Interesting. I would like to to shift a little bit because the 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 connection that I want to draw is what we've talked about right now about disability about our experiences about our aesthetic mindfulness mm -hmm. so i've i've worked with you on a couple of sessions and i'm going to do more mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. have had a we've had some really good talks helpful discussions mm -hmm. um through metal health which is your project now and i would like to maybe use use a little bit of of my my situation with you to kind of mm -hmm. highlight some of the things you're doing that yes you're still in the palliative care field but mental health is so much more than that and i'd really if if it's okay with you i'd like to kind of dive into your work but kind of use use me as an example so people can get a better understanding of what yeah. you're up to what you're trying to do That'd be beautiful. I'd, I'd, I'd love that. And I really appreciate you going personal, Gustavo. That, that, this, I, wish the rest, I wish the rest of the world found a way to do that. It's a totally adds a whole other dimension. So I really appreciate your willingness. So yes, let's, let's dive in. Awesome. So I reached out to you. Um, we, we had a session and uh, can you, can you just give people like, give the listeners just a quick, you know, yeah. Two minute idea of what mental health is and what you're trying to do. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So mental health, it's spelled M-E-T-T-L-E, metal, as in like one's inner strength, one's inner reserve. Um, so metalhealth.com is, um, is an online palliative care counseling and coaching business that my partner Sonia and I started last last year about a year ago or so um so that's that's the main that's what that is but you gotta have to understand what palliative care is um and we can get into the weeds a little bit but that's the that's the that's the that's the marquee but settling into what we actually do so so a couple of different things about our model um one is that it, palliative care is an amazing approach to health and approach to care. It's, a, it's a, something of a philosophy. Um, and it tends to be, it is is born in, in the healthcare, the medical model, but there's much about it that is not medical. And one of the things for me was to, I left my clinical work at UCSF where I was working in the cancer center for many years doing uh, palliative care. Um, we called it the symptom management service, but that was very much to a medical model. And there's a lot to say about the medical model. Um, but suffice to say, at least for now, that the medical model leaves a lot of stuff out. And the medical model tends to pathologize people. And the medical model, as you and I both know, has, has been a mixed blessing for us in the disability world. Um, you know, there's, there are other ways of looking at, uh, of understanding a life besides just the sort of biosciences. Uh, and there's more to an experience in a life than just sort of a diagnosis or a disease state. So mental health was, and palliative care itself as a field is meant to help blow up the medical model a little bit and welcome the emotional, the social, the spiritual aspects, the experience of living with illness, not just the transaction of trying to treat a disease. Um, so palliative care in its base is trying to be this much bigger thing, this portal to upload 
other interests besides sort of molecular interests into the experience of care. Um, so that's an aspiration for the field. So let me let me just digress a little bit more because a lot of your listeners, you may have heard of palliative care, but it's generally conflated with hospice and end of life care. Um, what's really important is you know, palliative care as a field did grow up out, it grew out of the hospice. Hospice came first in this country. Um, but in the 80s, hospice defined itself as an insurance def, uh, benefit and limited this kind of care to people who had six months or less to live and who gave up to trying to cure their illness. So that's how you qualify for this kind of care called hospice in our country. Well, so that's lovely in a lot of ways. And many, many people have benefited from hospice. And I understand why the government put those limits on it back in the 80s as to name this structure structure, and to pay for it. But the truth is, of course, like there's no magic to six months or less to live. It's not, you know, and A, and B, we're terrible at prognosticating anyway. People often, uh, we over, either over or underdo our prognosis all the time. Uh, and then, and so there's also this cross, this, this crossroads, this fork in the road. Like, why would we make, ask someone to give up anything to get this kind of loving support? So the field of palliative care grew up in the nineties, trying to push, to blow out the walls of these limits around this hospice idea. So now palliative care is, 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 is simply the sort of interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life. Um, that's the, the, the cleanest way I might be able to put it. Um, so, you know, in that definition, any definition of palliative care, you won't see any mention of death. We don't run away from death, but we're not focused on death necessarily. And hospice is a subset of palliative care. It's a kind of palliative care that is devoted to the final months of life. But otherwise, palliative care, a lot of my patients, um, you know, have years to live, um, a lot of, uh, when I was at the, in the medical world at UCSF, I've had patients for 10 years. And so that's all backdrop to say with mental health, we wanted to take this aspiration, this, this potential for this philosophy, this approach to care, take it, try to even pull it, make it bigger by pulling it outside of the healthcare uh, structure, the limits that go with healthcare as a, as an industry. Um, because if your subject matter is quality of life, um, abating suffering, finding joy, making meaning, you know, these are not, these are not medical things. Um, and so we, I realized that we were, uh, in the healthcare structures, we were um, uh, unnaturally uh, curtailing or limiting the potential the huge potential for this field to touch many more people, to be relevant to many more people. So for, for that was a big impulse of mental health was to pull it out of healthcare. We let go of the medical piece. I am a doctor, fine. And I'll talk to people about their medical things, but I'm not becoming someone's doctor through mental health. I, that's, that's an experience, a body, a skill set that I have that I can, that I, that informs how I talk to people, but isn't the whole enchilada. And so I don't want to necessarily just become yet another doctor for people, people who often have too many doctors, but rather I will sometimes coach people how to use their doctors a little bit better, how to communicate with them, how to navigate this crazy healthcare system. So, so right. So we got rid of all the structures at limb. We don't need a doctor's referral to come to us at mental health. We have nothing to do with in health insurance. And you don't even have to have a disease to qualify. Whereas if you were to find a conventional palliative care program to qualify, you'd have to have some serious diagnosis. And there again, you bump into these man-made limits. We're trying to get rid of those man-made limits and open it wide, wide open. So that's sort of the impulse that for Sonia and, and, and me to start mental health. So now enter our experience, Taylor Gustavo. I mean, it's, it's such a Beautiful case in point. Like you're, first of all, you're not dying, as far as we know, anytime soon. Well, you know, only, you're not only in so far as we're all dying, right? On right. Right. <laughs> right. You're still in that club, right? We're in that club together too, right? But right, you have an indefinite lifespan ahead of you. Um, you have, you know, certainly your deal. You touch upon the medical system, but you are much more than a diagnosis. And you know way more, as you and I have experienced, you know way more about your diagnosis than most doctors anyway. 
So in this way, I'm not asking you to come into the healthcare system and medicalize yourself and hand yourself over to quote unquote experts who actually know less than you do. In this mental health way, we can sidle up to each other as fellow human beings and share and kind of talk things out together, reflect. I can help you uh, sort of interpret the medical world a little bit and put it to good use for yourself uh, and leave the rest behind. And then you and I can, of course, we can wade into sort of issues of identity. How do we see ourselves with this disability stuff? Do we find the right words to describe our experience? Like how do we transcend the words we're given like disability, for example? You know, so you and I, so you're a great case in point, whereas you might not qualify in a medical system for palliative care or, or certainly not hospice. Um, in our bigger picture way, you, you're super welcome with us at Mental Health. Uh, so anyway, that's a little, that's a long-winded, but it's sort of an explanation about how mental health, what, why it's a little bit different, why palliative care is a little bit different, and then why mental health within the purview of palliative care is itself a little different still, and then a little bit of a hit of what you and I can do together or have done together. But I'm curious to hear about your experience on the other end of it. Absolutely. So I, my initial thinking, right, in, in approaching mental health and, and using the service was mm -hmm. number one, it, it, everything that you said, it'd be interesting to talk to you about disability, how we perceive it, how I've, how I've learned to adapt with it. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about prosthetics. You know, what, pro, what prosthetist might you know of that mm -hmm. might be better for me, right? Let's talk about our experiences with prosthetics. You were super helpful with that, but mm -hmm. I think on a, on a, on a deeper level, and, and this was something I'm still learning and was phenomenal, um, is how to approach doctors because, mm. I, you know, I went to an institute recently that specializes in, in my condition. Mm -hmm. And well, we'll start, we'll start from the past here. So growing up, right? Mm -hmm. um, my parents, I was born in Brazil. My parents came to the States. They interviewed a bunch of doctors. My father happened to be a doctor, so it helped. From Canada, from Japan, from the United mm -hmm. States, from other areas in South America. And I'd say half of what my parents heard was, your son is never gonna walk. He's gonna crawl around the ground like a snake and mm -hmm. you know, basically be a burden to society. Mm -hmm. So, there was, there's clearly some trauma there and some things that had to be worked out. There's clearly the idea of even when I was young and the doctors were trying to help me and we did discuss this, like you're in a room, I'm in a room basically in my underwear and people are talking about me. I don't understand what they're saying. They're poking and prodding. They're trying to help, mm. but it's not a good experience. Mm -hmm. So I saw this, you know, again, it has been a long time since I had been to an institute like this. I've gone and seen, you know, quote unquote, regular doctors and mm -hmm. to see some parents who were hopeful, their kids, you know, it's young children there. Some of them seem like they're doing great. Other parents, you see the desperation in their eyes. You mm -hmm. see the fear, you see the uncertainty. I experienced those things too. So it, mm -hmm. it really brought back a lot of, of old feelings, but we talked a lot about what kind of headspace should you be in when you go to see a doctor? Because no matter what we're going to a doctor for, if it's something minor, if it's something major, we are more vulnerable. We don't know what they know. We don't understand what our options really are. Mm -hmm. um, and they can tell us anything. And if, if, if we're in the wrong mood, if we're, if we're weak, if we're not well-informed, we could very well fall into some terrible outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it was really helpful. Like it stuck with me. One of the things it said is Gustavo, you don't owe the surgeon's ego anything, <laughs> right? Like fuck their ego. <laughs> amen brother yep so you know and i found i that was super helpful how do you know like 
I think so, maybe I'm wrong, but in my experience, I've heard stories, people that I've been interviewing, you hear it all the time, the word never, right? You're mm -hmm. never going to do this. You've had this accident. You're never going to be there. You were born mm -hmm. this way. You're never going to be able to do X. Mm -hmm. That word to me seems like the biggest, not only is it a poison in many ways, but why are we even using it when we have all these people that are showing us otherwise? Why even use that word at all yep. as, as a doctor? You know, I didn't see, I'm right. Let's see, let's see, let's start with the hypothesis that, that doctors, that healthcare in general is filled with people who mean well, right? right. Let's start with that thesis. I'm sure there are challenges to even that thesis, but in my experience, I, you know, I have, whether as a patient or as a physician, I have become convinced that by and large, people who go into debt to study health sciences just for the privilege of caring for another human being, that in its, by itself, in its nature, that, in, that, that pursuing a career in healthcare tends to attract people who really give a damn, you know? And, that, and so I believe that to be true. There are absolutely exceptions, um, but let's start from there. And then you sort of, then, the, then on top of that, those good intentions, of course, there's the medical training and the vernacular, the, the language, the habits, the, the, the culture of medicine. Then you throw all that stuff on top, the training on top of those good intentions. And then you throw in outrageous busyness. This like the turn, the screws get turned tighter and tighter every year. You gotta see more and more patients, you have less and less time. Life uh, treatments are becoming more and more complicated. You know, it's a mess. It's it's a hot mess. And so you put all that together, and out pops doctors who say dumb shit, and and are so consumed with all those things that I just rattled off that they've had to tend to, etc. That their own openness, their own curiosity, their own kindness, their own warmth, their own thoughtfulness gets beat up and beat out. So one of the things when I'm talking to young medical students or nursing students or anybody else is to encourage them to protect their, their basic caring, compassionate selves that they're most likely bringing into the field. Like you've got to protect that. The system by itself will beat that out of you. I don't think the system is inherently malevolent, but by its nature, we keep asking more and more of this system that's just not designed for this stuff. So one way or another out pops these these doctors saying and doing really lame things, hurtful things, which is, of course, it's just the height of irony that we in healthcare end up sworn to help people, we end up hurting people. And there's there are mountains of evidence to support that sad truth. Darn it. You know, so anyway, that's a little sort of backdrop into your to, to your point here. So one way forward. Um, I say all that to prime us on the receiving. I'm talking now as a patient, you know, a fellow patient, quote unquote, for our own sake, it's very helpful for us to kind of know how to read what we're seeing. And I think it's in general helpful for us to understand why doctors are the way they are, not to forgive them, that's not to excuse them rather, um, um, but to at least understand, to be able to translate what we're seeing and hearing and feeling from these guys. Um, so that's, 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 that's one point. Um, and so to, to get to your more focused question, though, you know, words like never crop in because I bet at best. So again, starting with the hypothesis that these are well-intended efforts. So at best, I think that never word is probably from a doctor saying, gosh, I really need this family to understand this. This is, this is real. This is significant. This is going to take some effort and to not casually just, um, I don't know what, just casually sort of underestimate what they're dealing with. And if we underestimate what we're dealing with, therefore we may not be prepared. We not, may not plan accordingly. We may not give it the time and space that it requires. So at best, I think when people use that word, they're trying to get across like, hey, pay attention to this. This is serious or whatever else. I wanna 
manage your expectations, you know, as it can be a kind thing to do. But so let's, even if it's, even if that's the intention, well, <laughs> the truth is we shouldn't say stupid words like never because we don't fucking know. Doctors are wrong all the time. To your point, there's evidence to the contrary all around if they're paying attention, but they're not paying attention because they're too damn busy and blah, 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 like we were saying. So around and around we'll go, but at my best, that's how I think words like that creep in um, and, and why I would encourage you and myself and anybody else to feed back to those doctors. Because otherwise, I think we also have a reverence for doctors in some way that we don't speak up we hand ourselves over and our experience uh, is relegated to sort of somehow less relevant than their own somehow. And in this way, we diminish ourselves and we pump up these doctors who, and frankly, I can tell you, I, as a physician, I don't enjoy that. Sometimes it feels nice that people think you're godly to be a doctor, but I don't enjoy that because I'm not God. I would much rather a patient be treat me like a fellow human being. And for my own sanity's sake, like someone coming at me that I'm going to work miracles, I've got to gently let them down and let them know I'm just another human being and I can't work miracles, etc. So we, we conspire to make our doctors arrogant, sadly, you know, so part of the message here is no, treat them like a fellow human being and feedback and say, hey, doc, you really mean never? You know, I, I don't know. I, I saw this guy over here or that guy over here or that word doesn't help me. You know, whatever it is, I'd love us to get to a point where it's actually a, a fruitful exchange between human beings rather than a doctor up on high and this poor patient who knows nothing to down low, exposed, vulnerable in some ugly gown. So anyway, that's a little riff on your question about never. I mean, what do you think, brother? I, th I agree. I, again, I, that that's why the experience was is worthwhile and why I love it because a, I understand their perspective. I understand what they're going through and what their problems are. So that helps me not take it personally. Exactly. Right. It, it gives me some ob objectivity. And then mm -hmm. you, you gave me some new approaches, mm -hmm. ask them some questions, be curious, be polite about it, you know, pick, mm -hmm. get, get into it with them just a little bit more on a human level. All of those mm -hmm. things are super helpful because it's human to human. And it's not, it's, it's not what you said. It's not this authority figure that you're looking up uh, as some, some God who's going to fix all my problems. Right on. So absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. It's also, do you think that if say a physician, a doctor said, well, look, your odd, the odds are against you. You know, if mm -hmm. I were to give you an estimate based on my experience, you know, mm -hmm. you're 80%, there's an 80% chance that you're going to have X out of this outcome, or there's a 10% chance, whatever it is. Do you think that that doesn't carry the right emotional weight so that we use, we kind of over-exaggerate and use those words like never instead? Does probability not not hit us the right way? I think you're right about that. And part of medicine, in so many ways, is a reductive process. And certainly, the healthcare system is, reduces our problems to a 15 minute encounter, and all this is insane. So I think you're right on there. There's a thread to make things that reductive simplification process tends to make things want to make things concrete. Yes, no always, never, black, white. Those are just more convenient, you know, and they're more striking and they're easier to study these dichotomous variables. The truth is so much of life exists on a spectrum. We're all, it's all proportionality. It's not yes or no, it's sort of to what degree. And so I'd like to think that we'd all respond to more nuance, like 80% chance of this, 20% chance of that. Um, because in, in that we can hear both the likely reality and the and the possibility that it could be something else. Um, but you know that that takes time to to communicate. That takes time to listen. You have to hear that in a certain way, and that begs for a more complicated conversation that can generally be had in a doctor's office unless you, the patient, push it. So yes, I think you're onto something. You're, I think you're really onto something there. 
but you're also reminding me of a, of a related tangent, which is we come up against this in prognostication when we're trying to prognose, uh, offer prognoses. What I'd love your doctor to do, especially when you're when you were younger, um, therefore more impressionable, you know. What, but but it, it really any encounter, it's not just faithfully transmitting information. That's not just the goal of a clinical encounter. It's important, but you got to kind of titrate that information to what the the person is is able to take in, is able to deal with. And so sometimes there's a time and a place to hold some silence and not foist data on another person. So I would love it if your doctor had said, had asked, hey, Gustavo, would it be helpful for me to kind of, would it be helpful for me to lend my experience and look down the road a little bit with you and try to guess where you might land 20 years from now? Would that be helpful to you, Gustavo? You know, because then you're, you get to say, hmm, you know, I don't know. The way I'm wired, if I hear that it may, something may go a certain way, then all of a sudden I'm kind of, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you know what? I, what really works for me, doc, because you're, thanks for asking. And boy, I feel your support and kindness and you're allowing me to relax and actually think in your presence. You know, actually, why don't we take it sort of one day at a time, you know? And when I'm ready to ask that kind of question, I, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back. And boy, do I appreciate you, the respect you just showed me by asking me whether to tell you anything. That's the way it really should go. What a different experience that would be. Rather than bombarding and beating people up with information, the name of truthfulness, which often happens. That would, that would be amazing. And I can tell you that would be amazing even today. I would yeah. love that question, you know, if, if going to the doctor tomorrow, that would be beautiful. Yes. And now, you know, not, not now, you know, Gustavo, you know, these things, but like, but, it, and a next follow-up sentence and will we'll come up in mental health visits um, with you and others uh, um, potentially would be, okay, so how about you telling your doctor, not waiting for them to ask, saying, hey, doc, before we go any further, I'm the kind of guy who likes information in a certain way, you know, so we patients we don't have to wait for medical education to shift and the pressures on doctors to wane and or really, you know, we can participate in our own care, of course, and we can participate in getting the kind of care that serves us well from our doctor by telling them what we need and how we need to hear things. Does, yeah, so that's the next, that's the next level. That's the next layer of sort of taking that responsibility onto ourselves. Uh, and, and helping to craft this experience in a way that's actually going to serve us rather than squash Absolutely. us. In a, kind of an interesting tangent, but I, I have an important question too, but an interesting tangent is mm -hmm. my favorite clients in what I do on my mm -hmm. day job are the people who have a good idea of what they want and what they like and what they care for, care about, and they tell me, look, mm -hmm. I'm really into music. I want the greatest musical experience you can give me, or I don't really care about X, but this is what I want to accomplish. That helps me enormously mm -hmm. to do a better job serving them. Yeah, so I think that's a, again, that's a beautiful point that we can carry over to a whole bunch of different professions and a whole bunch of different contexts. Um, totally. Yep. Amen, brother. Yeah. I'm super curious to know when you were a clinician and you were practicing as a doctor, how did you protect your protect that humanity? How did you not let the system mm. beat it out of you? Well, I was lucky in that I had this big time experience of being a patient myself and coming close to death and having engaged the healthcare system before I entered it as a student. So I had a lot more experience than my peers of how medicine actually plays out and how the difference between what the textbooks are telling you and the experience in the, in the, you know, in the hospital or an exam room or whatever. So that was a huge leg up for me going in on top of my own experience of being the son of a woman, uh, of a mother who had uh, polio and post-polio syndrome. So I've been around disability my whole life. And that experience certainly informed, you know, that helped me 
I was never really, it was not a big risk that I was going to somehow play into this doctor knows everything, patient knows nothing crap. I had, by virtue of my own experiences in my family and my own personally, I was already, I was pre-washed, you know, so I, I knew as I went through the training, I, and it felt like such an advantage. I felt like, which is an interesting statement because you might look at a guy missing three limbs in medical school and see that as a disadvantage. Uh, in so many ways, I felt like I had a really wonderful leg up. <laughs> Excuse the pun. So, um, so that's a big, so just knowing that um, going in was really, really important as you can imagine. And then, but more to the meat of your question, um, I was just careful in the same way we're saying the medical model is powerful, but it's not to be confused with everything. It's not, it's not the only way to see. It's not the only way to understand reality. I had already known that too by studying the arts. And so I protected, I made sure to hang out with friends who were not in healthcare as I would when I was a student. I lived a little far away, farther away from campus. I was sure to make made sure to protect my non-medical interests because I knew those were going to inform me staying a good or I don't know, a good human being or something like that. So that, those were some of the tricks for me. And that meant playing with art, music, getting outside, getting on my bike, doing anything but medicine, but that's still related to the human experience, because I always knew that medicine was on behalf of the of human experience, not the other way around. That's amazing. As we kind of, you know, wind down here, I want to be protective of, of your time. Hmm. Question I ask everybody is, what have I missed that you think is really important to talk about? Oof, that's a good, big, generous question, Gustavo. Let me think about that for a moment. Hmm. I suppose, I mean, here's where my mind goes. Obviously, there's all sorts of things we haven't talked about, but boy, did we cover some good stuff from where I sit, big stuff, you know? I suppose I'm tempted, well, I'm going to say my answer is that what's popping to mind now is to make sure to caveat, as you and I are speaking from with some casual, with a little bit of comfortable distance from some of the more painful moments of our lives, some of the more painful experiences that we're, we're talking about now, you know, kind of dispassionately. Um, but, you know, just to note that this stuff gets really hard. And even if we know it should be otherwise, or it could be different, like we're talking about all our aspirations here and how to understand things. I just want to note that you know, no matter how you slice it, even when we get great care, even when we stumble and find a doctor who we really light up with and who understands us and all that stuff, just to make a little note here that it can still be painful as hell, it can still be confusing as hell, I, that I just, so I don't want to, well, I guess my point here is I don't want us to accidentally ice, um, alienate or orphan the harder feelings, the harder thoughts, that are there too, no matter what happens. And just to remind each other that the human experience includes disappointment, suffering, pain, no matter how you slice it. Those aren't always a, fail, a failing of some system somewhere. They're facts of life. And so the, the perspective that you and I are sharing now has come from many, many years of wading through all sorts of things where you and I didn't know where we were ahead and didn't know the answer, didn't know anything. You know, so of, I just a lot of hard emotional labor. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And in some way, we are reaping the benefits of having gone through those, even the ability to sit with each other and talk about these things in an untraumatized way. So I want to just acknowledge the work that goes into getting where you and I are. And to note, too, in case any listeners worry that you and I have some secret knowledge and are just forever happy people because we figured everything out. Hell no, I am, I have to, I'll forget everything we just talked about and have to relearn it tomorrow. And even when I remember all the things we're talking about, it's still, life can still suck. Life can still be really hard. I can be really close to giving up, throwing in the towel, wanting to get off this planet, get off this ride as much as I love it. 
So I guess my, my point is here just to make a little, to dog ear the hard stuff, the impossible stuff, the questions that don't have answers, they need to have a place in this mix too. They do. And for me, having understanding friends, family, people that I could talk to that I could trust that weren't going to judge me, mm -hmm. um, immensely valuable. Mm -hmm. I think what you're doing with metal health, immensely valuable in that, in that aspect too, because you are counseling, you are building a community and you are, I think you're holding space for all of those feelings and all of those emotions. And when we talk about it together, it helps. Even when things are shitty, even when things are difficult, it helps. Mm. Ah, you're so, I fucking love you, Gustavo. That's so nice to hear, brother. Thank you. I mean, that is that is our intention with mental health. And sure, we're going to miss the mark sometimes, but that is exactly the effect we are trying to achieve. Uh, so thanks for feeling it and coming along with me. And I can't wait till our next visit now, man. Yeah, me I hope either. we'll have some more. So BJ, where, where can people find you? Where can people reach out? How can people learn more about mental health? Well, so uh, obviously the website, metalhealth.com is a place to go. And on there, if you have questions or whatever, that is a work in progress. Sonia and I are building this thing, as you would know well, uh, on a shoestring. So, you know, we're welcome feedback. And as you and I are talking, we're trying to kind of find language for huge experiences. And so we may not get our language just right. People may not see themselves in our site, but really everyone and everything is welcome. Every issue is welcome here. Um, so have a look at the website, shoot us an email, give us a call if you're wondering if you want to talk further. We offer 20 minute free consultations with me in there. There's a place to start. It doesn't cost anything just to kind of see where we are and see if we can help each other. So I'd point you there. Um, we're also, I'm on Twitter at, at BJ Miller MD, I think it is. Uh, and metal health, we are on Instagram, metal underscore health, and Twitter as well. So those are some places to find us. And I guess I will all say one more plug, because I did work on a book, uh, co-wrote a book with my friend Shoshana Berger, and Sonia was our, our partner in that too. And that book is another way to kind of get at some of the things we've talked about, and that's called A Beginner's Guide to the End. Uh, Simon and Schuster published it two years ago now or so, and that's out in the world as well. Phenomenal. I'm going to pick that one up. I haven't read it yet. So look, mm. I, last thing I want to say, I appreciate you so much. I was telling Sonia yesterday via email that mm. my first interaction with you was through Tim Ferriss's podcast mm. and the many, many years ago. And I remember thinking then, wouldn't it be incredible just, you know, just to meet just to meet mm. you, just to say thank you. And here we are now, you know, much more engaged, uh, mm. helping each other, learning from each other. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that the opportunity came up. And I thank you so much for, for being here, for helping me, for, for being a part of this. Uh, Gustavo, thank you, brother. That, that goes both directions, pal. Uh, I am thrilled to be your friend and colleague and whatever other words you'd put to us. So thank you, buddy. You're very welcome. All right. Thank you so much, BJ. All right. Take care, bud. Till next time.